The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Emily Day, and this is an episode from the Lawfare Archives for November 7th, 2021. The United Nations Climate Change Conference, or the COP26 Summit, has dominated media coverage this week. The goal of these negotiations was to get an agreement to curb carbon emissions fast enough to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. President Biden's major goal was to reassert America's ability to lead the world on climate change. So, for this week, I chose an episode from June 7th, 2012, in which Ken Anderson discusses his book, Living with the UN, American Responsibilities, and International Order, and gives insights about the U.S.-UN relationship, the UN as an institution, and international governance more broadly. Hello. And welcome to the Lawfare Podcast, the special book review editor discusses his own book edition. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and I'm here today in beautiful Palo Alto with Lawfare's own Ken Anderson, who is out here at the Hoover Institution with me. We're taking a break from a meeting of the Hoover Institution Task Force on National Security and Law to discuss Ken's new book, Living with the UN, American Responsibilities and International Order. Ken certainly requires no introduction to the Lawfare readership, so I will offer none. The book, published by the Hoover Press, is an incisive look at the relationship between the United States and the United Nations, at when and how the United States should engage with the UN, and indeed, a look at the UN itself. As Ken writes, why is there still a United Nations at all? How has it managed to survive over time, from 1945 down to the present, given its long record of underperformance, frequent outright failure, and even more frequent irrelevance? Why has not the ruthless evolutionary logic of history pruned it as a failed institutional sapling in a relentlessly competitive forest, as the League of Nations was pruned? So, Ken, what's the book about? Well, Living with the UN is an attempt to find a way that the United States can live with the UN over the long term. And 
that means two things. It means understanding that the UN is here and it's here to stay and it's not going anywhere. Um, but it's also an understanding that the UN is not going anywhere, both in the sense that it's a permanent institution and a permanent feature of the landscape, but it's also all grown up and it is what it is, and what it is is not particularly pretty. Does that mean it's, it's not reformable? It's reformable, I would say, only around the edges, and uh, reform can only really be tactical, uh, contingent. Uh, as John Bolton once said, it's uh, ever a task in front of us. It's, it's something which um, has to be seen as, as a constant task one day at a time because it's not really permanently reformable. Now, there's a... a you invoke Bolton here, but there is a rejection, I think, implicit in your thesis of a core aspect of sort of what you might call Boltonism, uh, which is the idea that the um, that the UN can be remade in in or that we can sort of reject the UN and that we can you know pretend it sort of doesn't exist or else kind of remake it in our image you're much more fatalist than that. Yeah, I would say that, that there's two phases to John Bolton. There is John Bolton, uh, really before he became UN ambassador or acting ambassador, uh, in which his view was exactly, if you remove the top you know, 10 floors off the UN building, no then one would notice. No one would notice. <laughs> and, and also that the U.S. could effectively marginalize the institution and march away from it as a whole. Um, that was not actually what he did when he was ambassador, and I think that it partly represented uh, his understanding in the position that, of course, he had to deal with the institution as it was. I also think it was partly um, Condoleezza Rice, Secretary Rice at the time, telling him that he was to take the institution seriously. He did, um, but I think he did so in a way that was, if anything, even more infuriating to people around the UN than, uh, than his sort of cavalier disregard of it or sort of dismissal of it before, because what he did was insist on acting like a lawyer, and in negotiations around fundamental UN reform in 2005, he decided to be the Sullivan and Cromwell lawyer for the United States who is going to negotiate every single aspect of UN reform and US relations to it as though it all mattered in court somewhere in a contract. That really, really annoyed people. And as you describe in the book, was sort of profoundly at odds with the culture of actual UN resolutions, uh, UN negotiations, which you describe as sort of based on an idea that you negotiate nothing with the idea that you can then disregard the outcome. Yeah, I think the the suggestion for the United States from its friends and not-so-friends was, well, you just have to be a player in order to have any impact on the outcome of all of this. Uh, and whether it's the 2005 UN reform process that was a quite formalized process or any of the other things that, that take place around these processes of consensus. Um, what the U.S. constantly gets told in this is 
to be a player, you got to be at the table. To have an impact on all of this, you got to be at the table. But don't worry about it because this is a consensus process, and if you don't like it, you can just put it in brackets, and and that will be the end of it. So the theory is that nobody gets stuck with anything they're truly unhappy with. Unfortunately, that doesn't really work out with regards to the United States. Um, and the reason it doesn't is because the overwhelmingly powerful player in that kind of a system who says no isn't just like any other player who says no. It's a player whose refusal to go along with the consensus process inevitably raises questions about the entire enterprise. And so the costs to that player in saying no are much more than they are to just sort of ordinary run-of-the-mill countries. So the Bush administration comes in with, with a view that it can marginalize the UN and ends up being a um, reluctant multilateral player, somewhat despite itself. The Obama administration comes in with a very different understanding um, and also, in your account, falls back. Yes. And it's important to understand also that it's very, very hard to look back to the very beginning pre-9-11 um, stance of the initial Bush administration. It wanted to go to the Durban big conference on racism. Uh, this was Durban 1. And people said to it, this will end in tears. This you, you don't seem to understand what you're getting involved in here. And there we were, some number of weeks into it, and Secretary of State Powell had to stage a sort of big walkout because it was just a bust around anti-Semitism and all the usual stuff. Um, some number of years later, in the opening rounds of the Obama administration, there's Durban too. And the Obama administration, with equal enthusiasm, says we're really going to be able to you know, get involved in this process, and we understand the risks involved, and we understand what happened the last time, but you know, we're going. And once again, they had to back out um, it was in considerable embarrassment. And I think the lesson that arises out of those things is that um, there are real um, issues that can't be elided by force of personality or by expressions of goodwill, and the instinct to try and satisfy those things does wind up ending in tears, and it would have been better just avoiding all of those things. Now, what, what are those real... What, why, why are there intractable issues that cannot be elided by things that we usually think of as affecting political institutions, like leadership, personalities? Um, I mean, wh why, why should we be so fatalistic about the UN? It's, it's here to stay, it's unreformable, we're stuck with it, and, and wh why so bleak? I guess I'd say bleak because the UN is, as, an, as not just an institution, but a whole set of institutions, a whole set of organs, a whole set of different things all sort of agglomerated under the UN label, and they're kind of frozen in, in stasis. They are trapped in um, what I describe in the book as being antinomies. So on the one hand, this is a collection of member states in which there is the humble secretary general who is the minister responding to those states. On the other hand, it's seen as this kind of uh, forward-looking 
supranational institution of global governance someday. And those two are not really reconcilable um, unless one sees a sort of gradual evolution from one to the other. The institution is supposed to be a universal institution open to all states, and yet it's also supposed to be an institution committed to certain kinds of substantive values. Well, not everybody is committed to those values, and so again, another kind of contradiction that locks the institution in place. It's committed to the sovereign equality of states. Um, everybody, you know, kind of in there is big states, small states, powerful states, not powerful states. It also has a security council with the P5 that have got vetoes that nobody else has got. All of these things wind up creating a set of contradictions that freeze the UN around a certain set of positions. The most important of which I suggest in the book is that we're trapped between the UN of today, and forever excusing the way the UN fails on so many metrics or just does very, very badly, we wind up excusing all of that on the basis of this institution that it's supposed to be tomorrow. So we look to sort of the glorious future of the UN and then turn out to be really surprised when it causes us to have to excuse anything that goes wrong today on the basis of this thing that it's supposed to become tomorrow. Very damaging, I think, to the institution. And so why is the young John Bolton wrong? Why isn't the answer to that problem just walk away, do your foreign policy, and forget about this thing that's never going to develop into what the sort of millennial vision um, had? Okay, you know, after World War II, we had a lot of dreams. We don't have them anymore. Just walk away from it. I think it's because the UN does actually serve a number of US interests and ideals in ways that the US would find it either extremely costly or just flat out impossible to wind up doing otherwise. So now let me put on my less um, pessimistic hat or less um, antagonistic hat toward the UN and talk about a couple of the things that it does that I think the US has an interest in seeing it do. One is that it is important to have a multilateral place for states to be able to negotiate. And whatever one says about the Security Council and the P5 and all that kind of stuff, the fact is, is that it causes very important discussions to be held at least partly in public. Right? Now, granted, they all go into a closed session, but they are held in a room that has got multiple countries involved rather than being simply bilateral negotiations, secret deals, all sorts of other stuff. There is a certain element that makes this more public and more transparent than it otherwise would. And that's probably on balance conducive to reducing conflict and, and reducing um, threats to peace. Second thing is there are functions that the UN performs that the US can't and the US wants to see done, of which the most important turns out to be a highly technical but also highly political one of UN peacekeeping operations. Heaven knows there are procurement scandals involving billions and billions and billions of dollars. There are, of course, all the sex scandals involved with you know, everything that goes along with that. There are lots of problems, but I think it is also fair to say that UN peacekeeping operations have uh, significantly improved outcomes in many places in the world. And the U.S. could not possibly do that itself. I mean, it has to wind up working through an institution that is at least 
on the surface able to claim universal validity uh, out of that. So that, I think, is a hugely important function. Um, and the U.S. could not do it alone. <laughs> There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So you replace in your construction um, both the sort of hyper-enthusiasm for engagement with the UN and UN institutions and this kind of blithe idea that you can just get rid of it with a series of kind of messy, what you call heuristics, which basically say, don't, don't think of the UN as one institution. Think of it as a whole series of institutions and make highly individualized judgments regarding how you're going to engage with the particular subunit of the UN that you're dealing with. So walk us through the, the, the heuristics that you propose um, and um, why, why certain institutions deserve different kinds of engagements. Okay. Um, the backdrop to the right way to engage with particular parts of the UN, the backdrop to that is that the U.S. plays a double role in the world here. One is that it is, within the UN system, the most powerful actor, if it wants to be. Um, and that's within the structure of the UN itself, simply on account of wealth and all the usual stuff. Um, but the second role that the U.S. plays is a parallel one in which it is the kind of loose hegemon for the world, providing certain kinds of crucial public goods, particularly in the areas of collective security, but also in large areas related to the global economy. So the reserve currency of the dollar is not a U.N. function, and it has you know, very little to do with the United Nations. Um, but the security of the high seas is essentially a global public good that for the past 50 years has been, or more, has been largely conveyed by the United States Navy. And what that means is that there's a whole series of public goods and also actors in the form of countries that do not really depend on the UN for very important things that if they took the UN seriously, they might have to depend on for. So NATO countries do not look to the UN for collective security to defend them. They look to NATO, which is to say they look to the United States. Uh, 
many other countries don't wind up looking to the UN for collective security because even those countries, not NATO, not Japan, Australia, that sort of gold tier, you know, gold plated tier of countries, um, they wind up still looking to the U.S. for things like the freedom of the seas and the openness of the sea lanes. That sort of public goods is is part of what the U.S. provides. And that kind of loose hegemony means that everybody can pay lip service at the UN to the notion of collective security precisely because they don't really depend on it. And that frames the general question, I think, about heuristics, which says, how should the U.S. engage with the UN? And it causes one to ask the further question, should the U.S. be engaging with the U.N. or some part of the U.N. on the basis of being a powerful or most powerful player within the U.N. system? Or alternatively, is it engaging with the U.N. on the basis of being the alternative parallel loose hegemon who's providing these various kinds of global public goods? All right, that's a long-winded answer to that really just sort of sets the frame. Um, now, the UN itself divides its activities into a couple of different general areas, and traditionally they're thought of as being collective security and international peace, kind of all the security questions taken together. Um, second, then, there's a set of questions related to the internal running of the UN, the internal management of the UN, its own efficiency, and many specialized agencies that's kind of attached to it. The third would be the development, um, essentially the human development, economic development, international development kinds of questions that the UN um, attempts to address, at least in part. And then finally, what we could call the sort of the UN of values, right? meaning human rights, uh, democracy, uh, values that the UN says that it represents in virtue of being the UN. And I think the question is how the US should relate to each of those functions and the particular organs of the UN that address those particular issues. So let's start with the, the security organs. You group those as entities that the United States should always engage with. Why? Because the US is in a position regarding security where it cares enormously, would be involved anyway. And the Security Council offers, on account of the veto, an opportunity for the United States to always be a player, but to always draw the line about where it doesn't want to be pulled. And so in that sense, these are questions that the U.S. will always care about very deeply. And the Security Council, and in particular being a P5 member of the Security Council, allows the United States to engage in the security questions in a way that it can operate both as the most powerful player on that council in terms of the projection of actual force and all of those metrics, um, but also as this parallel provider of security who has to be in a position of interrelating those two. And the Security Council is the place in which you can always do that. So the Security Council we always engage with. Talk about the areas where this is uh, where you, you, the, the category you call sometimes engage, um, and specifically, 
what are the circumstances, briefly, but what are the circumstances in which we should and should not engage with, in, 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 with entities in that category, and, and what are those entities? But many of the UN organs are organs in which the U.S. is quite happy to see the function performed. Right? So it's really just a question of how effective it is. Is it institutionally corrupt? Are the people involved in it basically just sort of rent-seeking? Are they effective at what it is they do in activities that the United States would like to see performed? So, like, what's an example of this? Uh, it would be these subsidiary organs of the United Nations that deal with standard settings around, say, um, telecommunications, for example. I see. Um, so, good, good functions, someone's got to do it, why not be the UN... And the UN may well have developed a whole series of, of, uh, of expertise in these areas, often which predate the UN. So when it comes to things like telecommunications, mail, things like that, these institutions actually date back before the UN are sort of absorbed in. Now, what's interesting is that you say sometimes, and here's the sometimes, the US looks at, say, the internet and thinks, hmm, there are certain functions here which we think would be really bad to hand over to the UN because they would immediately become politicized and, and uh, in ways that would be bad for us, and we think bad for everybody else. And so we think that the right way to engage on this is to, up to a certain point, and then essentially tell them no. And in those kinds of areas, the U.S. has got an enormous amount of ability to wind up saying, um, this and no further, and to engage in diplomacy to get others to come along uh, with this process. There are others in which the politicization process, and it you know, unsurprisingly very often involves issues around Israel, um, or hot-button issues of this kind in which the U.S. Um, really has to make a decision about when those entities decide to go places the U.S. is not prepared to go. UNESCO, for example, right? And it's um, an earlier sort of spasm of craziness back in the 80s that caused the Reagan administration to withdraw from the, that particular organ in, of the UN. Uh, we eventually came back when the U.S. thought that it had been sufficiently cleaned up, but now over issues of Palestinian sovereignty and Israel and those sorts of things, the U.S. is back in the position of having to say, are we going to walk again? Um, so the U.S. has to make decisions about both whether it believes that its resources, its time, its money, and its the legitimacy that it confers upon the organization uh, are sufficiently justified by the effectiveness of the organization on the one hand. Other times it will be a question of, is the particular organ of the UN simply anti-American or sufficiently anti-US interests that more effective is actually not a desirable thing? So third category you write about you call parallel engagement, um, and I think it's sort of particularly limited to the, the field of international development. Yeah. Now, parallel development, it's striking that people who do collective security, international law scholars who do international organizations, this whole field of development is a really different area for a lot of folks in that case. But there is a pattern which is deeply embedded in the UN in the development area, um, which can be briefly said, give us money, right? 
um, give us control over the money. Uh, if you don't actually give us the funds, then we will nonetheless tell you where we think the funds ought to be spent and how it ought to be spent and the rest. And the most recent version of this is the millennial um, development goals that were laid out back in 2000 or really in the couple of years before that, um, which was to be the most massive anti global anti-poverty thing that had ever been seen. Um, and the U.S. balked at that, um, largely because it couldn't see that there was sufficient agreement around how to actually pursue international development that it made sense to pursue a, a single strategy for this. And hence, the U.S. said, we're going to set up our own sort of parallel thing. And I describe it as parallel because it's not disagreement with the goal in principle. It's rather to say, nobody really knows what works in this area. And so the best thing to do is to engage in parallel activities where people pursue the goal themselves and try to see what works, and maybe at some point they converge on something and maybe they don't. And that is what seems to me to be appropriate in the international development area at this point. So finally, there's the areas where you know, the UN really makes people mad, you know, particularly the Human Rights Council and the General Assembly, you put in a category called disengage and obstruct. And I, uh, I think a lot of people will take a lot of emotional satisfaction from that chapter. I certainly did. Um, tell us about the activity. What, what characterizes the activity of the, of the UN that we should actively seek to undermine and what the processes you think we should use to, to undermine those activities look like? Well, I guess I think, first of all, that Practically anything related to the General Assembly, I describe it in the book as being um, the seed of waste and wickedness. Right? Um, and that the problem with the General Assembly as a heuristic is simply to contain it. Now, I don't wind up recommending defunding it or withholding dues under all but very narrow circumstances because... Um, Frankly, the amount of money is not that much, and I it, think it's better to actually supply them with funding, which um, people can essentially squabble over, because I think that their squabbling is actually a better use of their time from the U.S. view, rent-seeking and that kind of um, activity that doesn't produce very much. Because if they got more efficient, they'd simply be more anti-American, and um, we don't actually want to see that. Now, then one moves into the chief values organs of the United Nations and asks, what on earth happened here? Um, so what other than the human rights councils are these? Well, there are a series of special rapporteurs um, that would, for example, report. Well, report is too strong a word. They're independent special rapporteurs who are appointed by the Human Rights Council to report on particular things. Sometimes they do fantastically good work almost always where it is around a particular country other than Israel, mm -hmm. uh, where they are reporting on the human rights conditions in that situation. Other times their work is, quote, thematic, where they're around particular issues, extrajudicial execution, um, torture, various things. And a lot of that depends really on how the special rapporteur defines its work. Uh, his or her work. They're independent, often academic experts, and 
Um, the U.S. has done some very crazy things in attempting to accommodate itself to try and make it ingratiate itself to the world. So the U.S. has accepted the appointment of a special rapporteur around indigenous issues. Uh, the special rapporteur, who is a professor of law at the University of Arizona, Arizona State, one of the two, but in other words, from out there, um, is a Native American who was called upon the U.S. to return um, much of South Dakota to the Sioux, including the area covered by Mount Rushmore. Now, the U.S. signed on to the mandate that created this special rapporteur as though this were entirely a kind of positive, feel-good thing to do in large part because it had not the faintest intention of paying any attention to what the special rapporteur said once the special rapporteur said it. And one of the very big arguments in this book is that these kind of um, apparently cost-free exercises in value symbolism are actually quite costly indeed, and that other parties do take real signals from the U.S.'s willingness to sign on to things but then not any attention to it afterwards, um, and that signing on to exercises and symbolism of human rights at the UN, knowing in advance that they are unconstitutional from the U.S.'s perspective, uh, that they cannot possibly be accepted within the U.S. constitutional or domestic legal order, is actually a really terrible thing for the cause of human rights, because it simply promotes hypocrisy across the entire system. The book is Living with the UN, American Responsibilities and International Order by Ken Anderson, Lawfare's fearless book review editor. Ken, thanks for uh, taking the time to chat. Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you for listening to the Lawfare Podcast, a project of the Harvard Law School Brookings Project on Law and Security. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.